You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Welcome everybody. This is the second in the Sydney Environment Institute's Reemergence of Nature and Culture podcast series. And today, I'm very lucky to be talking to Mitchell Gibbs. He's a PhD student here at Sydney University in the School of Life and Environment Science, which he referred to, I think, to as Soul. Souls. Souls, yeah. right. That sounds very exciting. Um, Mitchell's a Dungadi man from Kempsey, and his research focus is on oysters and the climate change impacts on the oysters and the response of the oysters to climate change. Welcome, Mitch. Hey, how are you going? Well, I'm going well. So, Mitchell, first up, can you tell us a little bit about your research and what specifically you're looking at and what drew you into this research? Well, to start with, I guess I've got a few different avenues that I work down. So the first one would be I look at um, a native versus invasive species. And so that would be Sydney rock oysters and Pacific oysters, respectively. And I show how they would go with climate change versus each other in a controlled environment, which is just a natural estuary. The next one is I look at how over generations they would go um, with any sort of changes like um, CO2 in the water. So changing the acidity, which makes it more hospitable for them, uh, less hospitable, sorry, changing the temperature and um, their food. So if there's not enough food there, how will they then go after that? And that's the same with Sydney rocks and Pacific oysters. And I look at all of it by showing their energetic reserves and their biochemistry to show how each one of them are reacted by that and which is better or worse. So you have to kill them to find out. I kill a lot of oysters, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) I've been uh, called Stalin of the oyster world. (laughs) It's not very nice. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> okay, Mitchell, what drew you into this? Well, originally I did a forensic science and chemistry background and a lot of my work worked on chemical structuring and I got asked to do this and as soon as I got asked, I thought it was amazing and it was just so important in the way that uh, we're going with our research and uh, as soon as my supervisor said, oh, you should put a... Um, proposal to do this um, research with her, I was like, yeah, 100%. So I did and I've loved it ever since. Well, that's terrific. So tell me, is, is there a difference between the native and the invasive species? Oh, a huge difference. The native species is, I would like to say, a lot more gentler, a lot more reserved as well, like um, as if oysters really change their <laughs> looks or anything. But um but yeah, like they don't eat as much, um, well, they eat as much over a long period, but they're not as hungry, I guess you would say. Like they don't start, like pack themselves like Pacific oysters, which then makes it hard for Sydney rock oysters to get food because the Pacifics are eating it all. So, and, so with climate change, they're going to be less resilient than the invasive species? I would say so. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a bit grim. It, it's, it is quite grim because... Um, With a lot of papers and a lot of what people have said, um, and it's very evident in a lot of places, that Pacific oysters are seen as environmental engineers because they come in and they just change everything to suit them. So did the Pacific oysters arrive here of their own volition 
Or did humans bring them? Uh, they brought them. In the 1950s, they brought them to South Australia to um, increase their oyster uh, aquaculture, um, I guess, field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so they could get more money from it. And because they grew in cooler areas, they were making, um, they were growing faster and getting more money for the oysters that were being uh, grown. And then over the years, they'd been just moved further and further up into Australia. And I think around about 1980s, they made it to about Port Stephens, which is kind of where they're at at the moment. So the introduced species were taken to um, oyster farms in the south, and then they broke free. Pretty much. And moved north. Yeah, they've been moving ever since. They're slow, but they're bloody hardy. (laughs) So if they like the cool conditions... What's going to happen when the oceans heat up? Well, because they're so resilient, um, they love the cool conditions, but they'll take a bit of warm as well. Mm, isn't that interesting? And yeah. I think a lot of us think about um, uh, invasive plants in Australia. A lot yeah. of us think about invasive animals in Australia. We think about invasive humans in Australia, <laughs> but we don't oftentimes think about invasive oysters. Yeah, and, uh, and it's weird because it's not... Like oysters themselves don't move. So you just think that all they would do is sit there. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as they spawn out, that's when they start to move. And that's when they get a foothold in other environments around and stay there. Mm. Okay. So they're, they're territorial. Very. They're really good at pushing. So um, oysters are subtitle or intertidal, sorry. And they're really good at pushing. So the Sydney rock oysters further up. So then they get less water as well. So the Pacific oysters are getting more water in the um, intertidal range. Okay, so that 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 is this is really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so they're taking they're taking the zone that is closer to the ocean and moving the Sydney oysters closer to the shore. Is that what you're saying? No. So as the um, as the tide each day goes up and down, mm-hmm. if you look on say a jetty. So um, the Pacific oysters will be the ones lower down, mm-hmm. so they're out of the water for less time, whereas the Sydney rocks will be higher up, and they've been pushed higher up. So it's a vertical thing rather yeah. than a lateral thing. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Okay, so Mitchell, I've, I've heard you speak before. Yep. And there are a couple of, there are a couple of links here that I'm, that I'm hearing between your earlier presentation and what you're telling me now about these Pacific oysters being bought for aquaculture. Mm-hmm. Because in an earlier um, uh, presentation I heard you give, you were telling us a little bit about traditional aquaculture practices uh, around Australia. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're familiar with in terms of age-old aquaculture practices of the Aboriginal people? Well, I guess the first thing we'd have to say is that Indigenous people around Australia were the first people who ever had aquaculture in the world. Um, I know that a lot of times people like to think it's in anywhere else in the world, but um, there has been history of aquaculture within Australia for thousands of years. And there's places that that's still prevalent in, um, especially up north, where they still use the same techniques that they did before. It's just that because of 
colonisation, it got taken but then given back. and um, that, So the it in that conversation is the foreshore? The land, yeah. yeah. The land and water. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I guess, available space, mm-hmm. some people might call it. But um, And I'm going up home, as I said this afternoon, and Port Macquarie is um, a huge... Um, has had a huge history with aquaculture, with um, with oysters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's as I said, it's the oldest um, place of aquaculture in the world. So, so, so you're telling me that the oysters were actively farmed. Yeah, in the Macquarie Port Macquarie area. Yes, yes. Um, so, a lot of and um, this is also prevalent with. Um, uh, freshwater la- uh, freshwater rivers with mm-hmm. fish and those sorts of things as well. But um, Indigenous people for um, such a long time have known that um, there's there's ways in which you can harvest something but then uh, promote growth for the next generation. And, and that's what's happened in so many places around Australia that and oysters being one of them, pippies being another. And also using anything that was taken from that. So any of the shells that were taken or any of um, the meat that was taken, that everything was used. So then the shells were then put back into uh, the water or land to then um, have those minerals redispersed. And yeah, and that's, and that's happened all around Australia in, in many, many estuaries and um, coastal regions. Okay, so you, what you're talking about is sustainability practices. Yeah, uh, that's everything. <laughs> so everything that um, Indigenous people have done for... Thousands of generations is sustainability. So it's a um, a practice of environmental protection, probably environmental justice. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would say that, um, and I would say this as well with um, many First Nation cultures around the world. It's it's very similar where you respect what you've given, which is the food that you're able to have, and then you also, um, as I said. Pretty much every First Nation culture that I've ever interacted with has, has said the same thing. So practices of reciprocity and a consideration of intergenerational justice in yep. that as well. Right, but terrific. Also, but also teaching the next generation the right ways to do it and not mm. the wrong ways. Good, good. So one of the difficulties, I guess, is that you've got these millennia of traditions and then suddenly people were removed from the areas and people were alienated from the land. So as far as you know, how, have, how and where have people been able to maintain these traditions or have some of them been lost? I know that around Australia there would be traditions that are lost, mm. um, but I also know people who at the moment are working in a, in a scope to bring those traditions back and... Um, a good friend of mine's working in central, uh, in near Alice Springs, and he was saying that he's using writings from uh, people who travelled there, and and using that to then bring it back to the um, civilization that has lost that culture, or not all of it, but some of those cultural um, events, and he's bringing it back through the teachings that these people have written and he's obviously changing it back into their language and making it so that um, so that they can keep practising these traditions that had recently been lost. Okay, so you're saying that the, the early explorers wrote diaries, they wrote records yeah. and in that they recorded what the Aboriginal people were doing yep. 
that's got lost, but fortunately been archived from the sound of it. Yeah. Right. So the practice has been lost amongst the the um, the heirs to those traditions. Yeah. And now you're being able to reintroduce them using archival material. Exactly. Those um, and this is happening like. I know of that one in Alice Springs, but this is happening around Australia. People are bringing back culture more and more. And um, and because there are these archival um, letters and diaries and uh, any sort of documents, um, which has for a long time been held by certain institutions. So um, some universities have a lot of this doc- these documents that have now, um, you do have to get access to them, but these once people do, they can then bring it back to their community and say, this is what we have. Mm. This is what, um, and talk to the elders and talk to the um, emerging elders about how we can bring this back to the community that it should be at. Great, great. One of the things that interests me then is that um, around a lot of these um, practices of sustainability, shall I say, there are um, there are laws, there are traditions about what can be done and what can't be done yeah. and who can do what and who can't do what. And there will be times when the obligations attached to that may conflict with the introduced law, the introduced Anglo laws. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is how do people navigate when their obligations to traditional law or traditional um, systems come into conflict with the Anglo laws? Uh, so I guess, yes, it definitely does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the best example I think I can give of that is um, up north, a lot of people work, a lot of um, communities um, have dugong. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously throughout the world, dugongs are seen as like can't be touched can't be touched by anyone, like it's just the way it is. Um, they're endangered or um, whatever the classification is. But through Indigenous practices, um, and weirdly enough, who would have guessed, the fisheries um, department up in um, North Queensland actually went to the Indigenous people to find out how they knew so much about dugong because they were writing articles about dugong and everything was wrong. And then they've talked to the Indigenous people and then they told them what was right. But I can get onto that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the things was that um, dugong is, um, has such cultural relevance in certain areas so that um, you, can't, you can't not use it. And I know that um, within places, um, in Western culture, it's, it's illegal to mm-hmm. have anything to do with dugong. But for them, they know that the way that they, I guess you would say, fish, in quotations, mm-hmm. for dugong is sustainable because the way they do it. And so what happens is that the dugong pods or groups or whatever you want to call them, they're in a certain area. But um, when they do their cycle around of um, North Queensland at a certain time of year, the older ones, um, the ones that have no, aren't going to give anything back to the community and into their community aren't going to give any um, genetic diversity anymore. Like they've, they're pretty much the old dugongs. They go to a certain area and the young ones, the ones that are part of the community, part of the group, they go to another area. So these dugongs are able to be fished in such a sustainable way because they're like, 
you're only taking the very old dugong. You're not taking the young, the ones that are birthing now. Like you're not doing that. You're taking the ones who are sustainable and it creates a sustainable practice, which again, First Nations around the world have been doing for millennia. Like, yeah. Okay, okay. When we were talking before we started recording, you were talking about about the practice of, of totems, and I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit reluctant to use the word totem because I know it's an imported word. It's a it's yeah. a North American word, but the practice of um, being assigned responsibility for something in the environment and how that is uh, integral to. Um, to sustainability. So can you talk a little bit more about that for us, please? Oh, yeah. So um, within many cultures around Australia, um, your totem is seen as an ancestor of yours. So um, to give respect to your ancestors, you don't eat that totem. And so you won't have the same totem as someone else in the in the same tribe or the same community. Some people might, but you, no one's ever going to have the same totem. So... What that does is it creates a, a practice of conservation throughout everyone there because you can't just then harvest one animal. You have to you, you have to get um, different animals. So like one person might have a kangaroo. So you can't just only eat kangaroo because mm-hmm. some people won't be able to eat. So it's creating a practice of sustainability and respect to the land itself because all of our ancestors have, are part of the land now. And um, and that's where we get all of our knowledge as well. So we need to give, and we have been giving respect to this um, throughout generations. Mm-hmm. Good. So the big question that arises, and the question that you said earlier you can talk a lot about, is <laughs> when you're talking about the dugongs and the scientists going to the the uh, local communities and saying, "Look, we seem to have this wrong." So that brings up what can scientists learn from indigenous traditional knowledge, uh, particularly uh, science, the knowledge of science, the knowledge of the environment, the knowledge of, um, of creatures and, and interactions. Well, I think, as I said before, a lot. If I was to put it simply, a hell of a lot. More than what anyone knows now, but... Um, Especially looking at the sheer time factor, we've had thousands of generations of knowledge being passed down. You can't get that from reading a book. You can't get that from just talking to one person. When you talk to a community or other communities, um, and especially because within Australia, you've got communities from different areas with different plants, different animals, everyone has different knowledge. And and the knowledge that the grand differences between places and then the knowledge that these people have is ridiculously huge. And it's something that um, I think science... and I, I think the thing that gets me with science is that it's often classed as either Western or Indigenous science. And science is science. You look at something, you see something happen, and you change it. Or you do it more. It's like that is science. So seeing seeing a reaction and then putting that into practice is what science does in its basic forms. So indigenous cultures all around the world have done that literally the whole time until we're up to now. 
So if there's any questions about, especially about land, its land uses, sustainability, anything like that in Australia, especially that, of course, there's so much to learn. And I think the fact that I think now where people are starting to realise, and I mean in the uh, university sect, starting to realise that Indigenous cultures are so much smarter and so much um, so intricate with their design of different things. They know how good science is in Indigenous cultures and, and understanding just a fraction of that will make any institution a hell of a lot better. I think what you're saying to me is that there is, in this knowledge, there is both intense specificity and huge range. Oh, yeah. And and like I was saying, like, you've got places that only deal with coral reefs and um, things like that. Then you've got places that only deal with open water. Then you've got places that only deal with deserts. Like, the the range is phenomenal. Then you've got... And, like, you've got extreme hot to extreme cold. The range is ridiculously big. And people have lived in these places for, as I said, thousands of generations. So they're going to know things that people will never just, oh, yeah, I found that. No, like this is thousands of years, thousands of generations of knowledge that um, one person may have seen, I don't know, 20,000 years ago, but it's still being shown because people, you don't forget. If something goes bad, you don't forget about it. Hence colonisation. Yeah. No, you don't forget about colonisation. You're quite right. So. I did, I put you off. No, no, no. Well, yes, you did. And um, look, I was thinking about, you know, my own experience, the Maori experience. So, yeah, look, I know. But obviously this, this knowledge lights you up. The fact that this knowledge exists in the community really lights you up. I can see it in your face. I can see it in your eyes. We can hear it in your voice. Your project, though, your PhD project, seems to me to be very Western. Yeah. So um, I would like to think that um, what I'm doing is having a few stepping stones to get to where I want to do. And to be able to do anything in a sandstone-built environment like this, I need to, I guess you would say, fall to a few things first. And uh, one of those is doing it in a way that allows me to be recognised within the Western confines and then try to show, well, my goal is to show um, the knowledge that is in Indigenous science, but show the Western confines that it's the same thing and that respect is where it should be due and it's all through Australia. Okay, so, so you've got a future project a future goal yep. that's about demonstrating the depth and this breadth of original knowledge, original uh, scientific knowledge that's, yep. that's been built, that's been hand down, handed down through teaching, I guess through song, through I guess culture, through dance, yeah. through culture, through instruction, just not written in books. Exactly. Um, and that still exists yeah. So you want to access that and you want to be able to demonstrate um, what can be learned. Yeah. And see, I'll never learn everything. I'll 
like I'd love to, but I, I can never. I, there's too much for one person mm-hmm. or many people to learn. It's just too vast. And I think that I think once um, the university or any sandstone structure really starts to realise that there's such knowledge there and and the respect should be there, then I think that um, it will start to progress a lot further. Mm-hmm. But, um, but at the moment, it's not as far as I, I would like, obviously, but... Um, but that's where I would like to go. Mm-hmm. And so will you continue to focus on the water world? I, I would probably stay around um, water itself just because I've done a lot of um, already a lot of research in that area. But also, too, um, my passions lie around water. I've um, lived near water my whole life. And, yeah, so I'd probably stay around water and, as I say, like, there's too much for one person to know. If I went from water to land, I'd be, I'd, I'd be lost. You'd be up the creek without a paddle. <laughs> <laughs> you could say. <laughs> or perhaps you'd be cast on dry land. That yeah. might be the better way of putting it. <laughs> okay, Mitchell. So um, I really want to thank you for coming in oh, and sharing what you know. And um, we, m- m- me... And SEO, I wish you well in your studies and we hope to keep on drawing you into our conversations uh, as time goes by. That's terrific. Thanks, Mitchell. No worries. Thank you. Good day.